Today's reading is a story of Lazarus, a reading some of you may know. It's incredibly rich. We had to um, really cut it to get the, the, the best parts in here, but we still had to cut it. So um, if you can read this on your own at some point, please do. It is such a powerful, powerful reading. It comes um, near the end of Jesus's ministry when he's about to go to Jerusalem. So he's heading to Jerusalem and then he's suddenly asked to come back to Judea um, because Lazarus, his friend, is ill. Um, And we will start there. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. After saying this, he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. Jesus began to weep. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. So they took away the stone. 
And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. When he said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Hear what the Spirit is saying to you today. Cheryl said this story about Lazarus is pretty amazing. We've also been reminded that it comes to us from the gospel according to John. The last of Jesus' signs in John. And it's, it's trying to do something very poignant. It's trying to give evidence to us that God made manifest in Jesus is powerful, truly powerful. Not not that God is simply interesting, not that God is simply the bearer of good moral teaching. This is a story about a God who has an imagination and the power to bring about what he imagines. And so today, I mean, this text could be the stuff of dozens of sermons. But today I want to talk about what I think is is this amazing gift called imagination. Children have it. Quite naturally, they are able to believe in things that stretch the bounds of reason. I think poets also have it. Poets seem to live in a less bound world. Think of the great lines of Pablo Neruda. You may remember this one, but he writes on the topic of poetry. I did not know what to say. My mouth had no way with names. My eyes were blind. And something, something started in my soul. Fever are forgotten wings. And I made my own way, deciphering that fire. And I wrote the first faint line, faint, without substance, pure wisdom of someone who knows nothing. And suddenly I saw the heavens unfastened and open, planets 
palpitating plantations, shadow perforated, riddled with arrows, fire and flowers, the winding night, the universe. And I, infinitesimal being, drunk with the great starry void, likeness, image of mystery, felt myself a pure part of the abyss. And I wheeled with the stars. My heart broke loose on the wind. I have no doubt that God is the inspiration of great poets and the great writers of fiction. And I also have no doubt that God invites us into such a world. And I think here's the problem. The problem that Jesus encountered over and over and over again with his disciples. We seem to lack imagination. It's it's like it gets conditioned out of us. It's, It's like it gets beaten out of us. We fall prey to the cultural imperative to stress reason, to be predictably ordered, to assume that things are just the way they are. What can we do? But I'm convinced that this posture demonstrates a lack of imagination, and and I see it in my own life all the time. Particularly when I'm angry, it's like my imagination is gone. I only have one choice, which is never true. Alexander Milne, the author of Winnie the Pooh, states the problem bluntly. When childhood dies, its corpses are called adults. When childhood dies, its corpses are called adults. So I've been musing on this topic this week, and I recalled the book that I'm reading. It's called Covered by Night. It's a book that won the National Book Award, and it's a book, I think, about the power of imagination and the intractable resistance rational people seem to have to imagination. Let me tell you, let me tell you just a little bit about this amazing book and recommend it at the same time. It's an historical account of the great treaty of 1722 in Pennsylvania. And in short, this story chronicles the murder of an Iroquois man at the hands of two white colonists, John and Edmund Cartledge. So in the face of this murder, the governor of Pennsylvania fears war with the, quote, Indians. And so the governor is prepared to impose strict British law, which would have these two men executed. Proper justice, they would say. But the native people, 
a multicultural, multilingual group of many different Iroquoian and Algonquin-speaking nations argue in Pennsylvania that their preferred remedy is reparations, not retribution. At a meeting in Philadelphia to try to resolve the crisis, Native diplomats explained to William Keith, the governor of Pennsylvania, that they expect Native practices to prevail in resolving the murder. And one of those diplomats, a member of the Cayuga Nation, demands that the governor consider their protocols, which requires the expression of formal condolences, participation in spiritual rites of forgiveness and community renewal, and the payment of trade goods as reparation. And then the diplomat from the native peoples adds this final instruction to the governor. He says, quote, We do not desire the execution of John and Edmund Cartledge. We do not want these brothers killed. And the governor argues back. The laws of our great king does not allow for setting a killer free. Such a man, by law, must die. And the native elder makes his position clear. One life is enough lost. There should not three die. And so the treaty, the great treaty of 1722, is born. And two brothers' lives are spared. And native wisdom won the day because they saw a different way. They saw a different world. Cheryl talked recently about what we see and how what we see limits our response. And what I say is back then in that moment in history, imagination had its way, captured the moment, only to be filed away and lost again in a world that has always preferred punitive justice and mass incarceration. And so we land in this biblical story, which is lots of things, but it is, for today's purposes, a story that wants to stretch our imagination in precisely the ways I think faith wants to stretch our imagination. Lazarus is a friend of Jesus, brother of Mary and Martha. Lazarus is sick. He's very sick. As the story tells us, he dies. 
which is, of course, a fate that awaits all of us, no matter how much we deny it. And in the story, Mary and Martha are are both sad and they are frustrated. They wonder out loud, why did Jesus wait so many days to come? If you'd come sooner, you could have done something about this tragedy. Jesus responds to them. I came when I came. I came when I came. And this is really interesting to reveal the glory of God. I came when I came to reveal the glory of God. That line's baffled me at times. I don't know what to make of it. But I think maybe it's something like this, that God is declaring that God can bring grace into every situation, no matter how painful and no matter how tragic. A a hard truth when we're in the midst of grief. Marilyn Robinson opines on this topic in her wonderful novel, Gilead. I didn't ask about Covered by Night, but anybody read Gilead? It's really an an incredible piece of fiction. And it's about an elderly minister who has congestive heart failure And he knows he doesn't have long to live. The Reverend John Ames has lost his first wife and his infant daughter, Rebecca, years before. But he's married again and and he now has a son. and, And this book, this wonderful book, is a letter to his son. And this and this is what he writes. Here I am trying to be wise the way a father should be and the way an old pastor certainly should be. I don't know what to say except that the worst misfortune isn't only misfortune. And even as I write these words, I have your infant sister, Rebecca, in my mind the way she looked when I held her, what I seem to remember. Because every time I christen a baby, I have thought of her again. That feeling of a baby's brow against the palm of one's hand. Ah, there must be such prevenient grace and courage in this life, a chance for all of us to acknowledge that there is more beauty than our eyes can bear, that precious things have been put into our hands and to do nothing to honor them is to do great harm. More beauty than our eyes can bear. Precious things put into our hands. 
And his last line, oh, how I have loved this life. Back to John. We find the very human Jesus grieving with Mary and Martha, weeping with them. And then he makes the big declaration. The big declaration. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And Martha puts a spin on it and says, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We know that something's going to happen at the end of time. And Jesus is never talking about the end of the world. Talking about today. Resurrection is not about the end of the world. Resurrection is about today. And then Jesus goes to the tomb with the crowd. Pretty dramatic. He yells at the tomb. Come out, he screams. And Lazarus walks out all dressed up like a mummy. Kind of it's a little bit like a horror movie. Lazarus walks out like a mummy. And then these amazing last lines unbind him. Unbind him. Let him go. So what do we take from this crazy, imaginative story? A story where probably most of us don't even believe that Lazarus was raised from the dead. But, but here's the thing. Beneath the details we can encounter a God-centered and lasting message. Resurrection doesn't wait for Easter. That's why we sung that hymn today. Don't, don't, don't dare wait for Easter to consider the possibility of resurrection. We don't need to wait two more weeks for God's grace. Because God's time is always now. Whatever misfortune we're in the midst of, whatever tragedy we're in the midst of, whatever hardship we're in the midst of, whatever challenge we're in the midst of, whatever good fortune we're in the midst of. I don't know, maybe it's a baby's brow in the palm of your hand if you might be so lucky. Maybe it's the resurrection of Native American justice in the face of our thirst for punitive justice. Maybe it's the resurrection of forgiveness for someone who desperately needs that gift. And maybe it's just simply imagining an entirely new way to relate to your spouse are your children, are your friends, are your enemies, because the way you've been doing it hasn't been working very well. What if we just considered 
I want all those options open to me. I want all those options open to all of us. Eyes to see and hearts prepared to try something new. And I love that last line, unbind him. Because you see, that's not God's doing. That's a call for us to finish the work of resurrection. God doesn't unbind them. They unbind them. Unwrap them. And let him go. So maybe we consider in the next couple of weeks what it would look like for us to unbind ourselves, what it might look like for us to unbind someone else, what it might look like for us to rise up. <clears throat> Back to Pablo Neruda for the closing words in his Nobel speech. Back in 1971, listen, in the dawn, armed with a burning patience, we shall enter forests and splendid cities. Only by being armed with a burning patience can we conquer those forests and those cities which will bring light and justice and dignity for all of us. We are not corpses. Rise up.